Hello, and welcome to episode six of the Precision Microcast with Josh Hacko and Adam Demuth. On today's podcast, we talk about mass production linear transfer micromachining, the history of the precision screw, and Josh and I's precision problems in the shop. We hope you enjoy listening to this episode of the Precision Microcast. So this week, we're talking about transfer machines. And uh, I guess it all stemmed from a video that I sent Adam about maybe four or five months ago about a machine called a Fleury Modulo, which is a watchmaking-specific machine. Uh, And the video is about eight and nine minutes long. And I recommend everyone, while you're listening or before you listen to the rest of this podcast, give that video a look because... um, that's the, the machine that we're talking about today, the precision obscure or less lesser known machine. And what's fascinating to me is the whole idea of linear transfer or rotary transfer machines and why they're used. So before we get into it, Adam, do you have any experience with transfer machines? And um, I guess you're not quite limited to CNC machines as well as other types of linear transfer machines, right? Yeah, uh, you're starting to see now machining operations happening in tool or on a Beeler system. And so that's kind of where my experience is from. Um, I've done drilling and tapping inside of a die and using drill spindles. And that is kind of its own little version of linear transfer. And uh, I, I always like transfer machines because to me, they have a lot of the same attributes of a progressive die. You have multiple operations happening each time the part progresses forwards. Um, and so it ends up that you have a part coming off the end of the line very, very quickly every uh, every iteration. Yeah, so with I, I saw that Beela die that you posted um, quite a while while you're still working in Suburb, and you were tapping in the die. Um, how did you do that? Uh, that actually wasn't too bad. I, uh, I used off-the-shelf ER-16 collet shanks, uh, and then I sent them out and had a screw pitch ground into it. So in this instance, it was a M5 by 0.08 pitch tap that we were using, thread forming. So the outside diameter of that collet shank was half inch. And then I had a 0.8 millimeter thread pitch ground in it, um, which I think that's probably uh, a, a rare instance of English diameter metric pitch. Um, and then there was a corresponding oiled bronze nut. And so it stayed stationary. And as the as the tap shank spun, the the ER call it would both spiral down at the same pitch of the tap, uh, and then I had six callets in total, all in a relatively tight space, and I had two servo motors, and then I had them daisy chained with a timing belt, and uh, I had to split it into two for horsepower reasons, but so they would fire down at. I think it is 6,000 RPMs and then we're firing back up at eight 
and we're we are doing that 120 times a minute. What? <laughs> That's insane. And obviously, thread forming because you couldn't couldn't manage swarf, I guess, in in a die or in, in a Beeler machine. Uh, well, there it's not a swarf-free process. There's like a sludge, it, like it's this metallic particle laden oil because we do have MQL misters on the taps. Wow. And so how uh, long do these spindles, these like um, uh, pitched spindles last for? Like how long does the nut survive in those in those uh, production circumstances? Uh, well, we were hoping for a million cycles. Um, the problem is, is that die was PPAPed, which means it has to kind of go through a pre-production approval process. And it got through there fine. And so that was probably 100,000 cycles. Um, but uh, that doesn't come on until 2021. So a lot of the times dies get built six months to a year in advance, proven out, and then they sit until they're needed. Um, the automotive industry is very, very peculiar about having all of its ducks in a row. Um, so and that... so. It, it'll it'll be a while till we really know how well that ran. And so, what else did you do in that um, in the Beeler machine? Uh, we had a project, and this wasn't with Superb, but uh, we were taking aluminum extrusion and stamping some features into it, and then using carbide slitting saws, slotting them or slitting them to length, and then that also had a thread formed. It stamped and extruded like a uh, a foot so instead of just being a stamped hole through the metal it flared metal out the back which gives you gives you more wall thickness and then we we would tap that so technically that was just machine tapping and sawing but i thought that was an interesting project as well it yeah it boggles my mind that we can actually do those sort of things uh at that speed like um, with that first project at 120, I guess, cycles a minute, that's, that's, um, that's faster than most people can actually look and see and observe. <laughs> There's a precision process happening at the same time. Yeah, it boggles my mind. Yeah, um, unfortunately, at those speeds, you, you can't observe it. So you're relying a lot on sensors to make sure that the tap A came out of the part um, and if it didn't, what happens? Uh, what's your logic circuit look like? Um, uh, but even then, you have 120 parts a minute. So if, if the thread starts to get tight, you have to have a way of knowing that pretty short order. You don't want to make a thousand bad parts because three minutes ago, or you know however long, the the thread started to wear. Um, so so you have to have some kind of way to to inspect the holes coming off the line. And so how did you do that? Did you do it visually? That wasn't my problem. Um, they, had, <laughs> they had some kind of visual inspection system going on. Um, and I think what they ended up doing is they were able to measure the minor diameter that that form tap produced. Because a form tap mm -hmm. starting with a bigger hole and it's swaging the tap into the metal and as a result some of that metal flows inwards um, and it actually shrinks to the minor diameter of the tap and i think they were able to 
set up a process that whatever that measured minor diameter is equates to this thread fit. I bought some uh, rolling dies because I saw someone else using them in a machine and I'm planning to use them in the Citizen R04 and roll or more or less form um, my threads on my screws. And uh, it's the same process. You're just swaging the material out. And the problem with a, uh, a die instead of a tap is that if your starting diameter is too large, you just fill up the die and the die just cracks. Um, and I'm assuming the same thing happens when, when you make a hole too small with the tap. Obviously, it just doesn't go in and cracks. But how did you control that? How did you make the hole? Was it stamped? Yeah, we actually had to do a lot of uh, uh, DOE work on that. Um, a stamped hole diameter would equate to a different thread fit. So we had to really kind of hone in like down to the, the single digit thousands what size we wanted that hole. And then the other t uh, problem was how do we condition the, the chamfer? Um, mm. How big of a chamfer? Uh, because there is some back and forth with the customer they didn't want much in the way of a chamfer for whatever reason. Uh, but you obviously need something to prevent like a flared edge when the tap exits. So yeah, the hole was stamped and then we, we coined a uh, 45 degree chamfer on either side. And then it went into the tapping station. And what material was this? Uh, that was just a, like a, uh, I think quarter hard, low carbon steel. Okay. Okay, and that's because that's part of the reason why rotary transfer machines um, can be very successful because you can quite successfully um, uh, machine some difficult components with very long uh, intervals between changing tools because you can slow individual processes down. Um, obviously, uh, increasing spindles and, and um, stations uh, increases your throughput, but if you don't track those two things line linearly, you can also increase your process reliability. So <laughs> probably enough talking about dies and maybe we should talk about the Fleury machine. Um, but that that is kind of an interesting point. Your operations only have to run as hard and as fast as the slowest operation. Absolutely. So if you have three chains or three machines chained together and one of them's doing like a tapping operation, um, your finish milling doesn't need to go much faster than that tapping does. So Absolutely, absolutely. And um, that's where these Fleury machines really, uh, I guess, yeah, I think a lot of people see like 10 machines in a row and say, oh, wow, 10 times the output. It's, it's less about that and maybe like eight times the output, but at a much more reliable rate. And I think that's where these Fleury machines and other um I guess transfer machines do really well. And so I've got a list of a few different transfer machines here. Pressi Tram or Pressi Tram, or I don't know how you actually pronounce the name, but they have a very strong presence in the watchmaking industry as well. And they make rotary transfer machines. And uh, their main model is a 12 station, 30 plus axis machine. And you can do uh, turning, milling, grinding you can do any sort of set of operations um and then you've got i guess uh, multi-spindle lathes like an acme or an index or a tornos multi-swiss um 
And that's also very interesting because you have to have eight bars. You have a, you know, a bar feeder with eight bars that all spin and revolve. And, uh, and I think you mentioned that um, you've seen some hydromat machines in the automotive industry as well. Yeah, that's a pretty standard. Uh, that's a rotary transfer machine. And um, usually what happens there is like your first station is a bar feeder and it'll feed in a length of material and then cut it from the bar. And so there's a ring and it, it transfers that part from from station to station um, and then at the end spits it out. Uh, but the rotary transfer machines are quite large. Um, I feel like maybe 20 foot diameter is what you need with like the walkway around them. Wow. Uh, but the, the throughput's immense. And so on the other end of the spectrum, you've got these Fleury machines. Um, yeah. So by, by this point, our listeners may have seen the video. Um, and if not, pause the podcast and head to the Instagram page and you'll see a link uh, or at least a... Um, uh, following link to the video and you'll notice that it's a very specific type of application these machines were designed to manufacture two really two specific types of components for the watchmaking industry and they are main plates and bridges and so if you go onto my instagram for example and scroll past you might see some main plates and bridges they're flat uh, usually brass components and you can think of them as transmission housings. So uh, the main plate is one side of the transmission housing and the bridge is the other. And in between them, you have some bearing uh, positions for some axles and gears. So you, you run into a lot of problems when trying to make these parts. Uh, they demand very precise tolerances. Um, and beyond that, they have to look quite pretty they're 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 usually put on display in very expensive watches and so your surface finishes and uh i guess all your chamfers and you know how you machine the part it all it all ties in and so the swiss industrial giant has spent a long time thinking about how to make these parts and uh it's driven by really uh only a few companies there's about I'd say less than five companies that drive the production of these Fleury machines and other types of milling machines for the main plates and bridges. Um, and one of them is ETA, ETA, and ETA is owned by the Swatch Group and a sister company of ETA is Omega. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of Omega. And they make, or at least ETA makes, about six million of these parts per year. Um, that's individual main plates and then another 6 million bridges and so on and so on and so on. So these these go into different movements. Um, so it might not be 6 million of the exact same part, but it'd be safe to say that uh, the minimum run size for one, uh, one part number would be more than 100,000 parts a year. So in comes Fleury. And Fleury, uh, I guess, historically specialized in watchmaking equipment, all, all sorts of different, you know, tools for the watchmaking industry. And more recently, in a modern sense, manufactured these linear transfer machines. And the as we've mentioned, so, so um, 
And as we've mentioned up until this point in the podcast, it, it's all about, I guess, the economics of production. So it's the speed and the accuracy and the volume. Those kind of three things drive the design and manufacture of these machines. But there is another very, very interesting facet to these machines, which is that they produce parts that are decorated and deburred and cleaned and uh, I guess like sandblasted, for example, and then assembled as well. So not only do you have milling and uh, I guess like U-axis boring and um, drilling operations, you also have uh, like, uh, what do you call it? Perlage, there's a name for it. Um, the spotting. Uh, engine turning? Yeah. yeah. So you have, <laughs> sorry to everyone, but. What else can I tell you about pocket watches? <laughs> yeah, not much. <laughs> um, so you get these decorated parts um, popping out. And the, the most interesting thing to me is that you have a module that's dedicated in this linear chain to pressing in other finished components such as bearings, pins, um, like uh, small steel pads and uh, other sub-components so that you get this main plate or this bridge as a completely finished component without any uh, any operations required after that, except for plating. You know, plating is probably the last thing. Uh, so when you watch this video, what stood out to you, Adam? Uh, how they kind of honed in on like a specific carrier size. So a lot of all, all transfer machines, they kind of have one thing in common is something is automatically taking the work from station to station. Sometimes it's a belt. Sometimes they're on like a common pallet, like an Aroa. Uh, sometimes you see like these, uh, we call them moving staircases. It's just like a, a gear rack that picks up, shuffles over and sets down. Um, and that's a good way to accurately index a part a distance every cycle um and they they've kind of honed in on just this square brass blank that has some locating features and so any any watch bridge or main plate that fits inside that plate can go right into their system with minimal tooling changeover and i thought that was kind of clever um because in the automotive industry a lot of times there's work holding specific to the casting going through the transfer system, whereas they kind of have a one size fits all work holding. Yeah, that's right. And there's a company that makes just those blanks. That's all they do. And I mean, obviously they have huge quantities. If you have to make 6 million parts, you have to make 6 million blanks as well. Um, and the company's called Novasort, and you can sort of see what they do. And they do a lot of progressive stamping for the watchmaking industry as well. And all these blanks are actually like fine blanked out. They're stamped, um, which is super interesting to me because they, the I guess the accuracy uh, of the part between the stations is determined by the accuracy of those locating features. Um, and it's no mean feat. It's no, no easy feat to manufacture those those uh, those plaquettes, as they call them, or plates. Uh, and they're double disc ground as well, so it's like the thickness tolerance is, I think, usually within 10 or 15 micron, 
and the parallelism is very very good as well so it's yeah it's serious serious stuff now i mean it's an obvious point as well but another thing that kind of stood out to me is that even though you have um the standardization of the palette size in this case or like the the part uh, carrier or the blank size these machines aren't really targeted as a one size fits all solution it's very much a part oriented sort of process um, but the flurry machine sort of uh, I guess shucks that trend because it's completely modular so these you know for example if you had a set of bridges that you didn't want uh, anything pressed in no jewel bearings or no like pins pressed in you could literally pallet jack th that last module out of the chain <laughs> or if it was in the middle of the chain pallet jack that one out and you know squish them all together again um, so you could do very small batch sizes and you know on their website they say that they do you know very small batch sizes for this type of machine 10,000 parts which is really not that many uh, I just like that they they have this pretty basic base for their machines, and it's about the size of a, a household appliance, maybe like a washer or dryer. Um, but in terms of the motion, they have quite a few options um, in terms like mill head configurations, uh, five axis, three axis, dual station, three axis. You have different tool changer options. Uh, you have a U axis boring head which is remarkably fast. Um, looked like it was a couple thousand RPMs is what you could uh, turn. Um, and that surprised me because usually when you get into U-axis work, you have a lot of displaced mass spinning around and uh, it takes a heavy machine, but um, this seemed to handle quite well. Um, so I, I like that they just have this modular concept even within their machine for their modular concept line. Yeah, with that U-axis, I think the way they get around um, the difficulties of the displaced mass is you can see they have two, uh, I guess, boring heads per spindle. Mm -hmm. And so they obviously, you know, offset the, um, the displaced mass. So you end up with uh, like, a, like a moment cancellation or an inertia cancellation so you don't get any vibration you can see the guy actually put some sort of measuring vibration measuring device to uh to see how out of phase those those weights spinning weights are um i thought that was epic and it's like it's i think and i obviously didn't make the machine but i think they did that to cancel out the vibrations rather than doubling the throughput yeah, and a lot of like high-end boring heads will have the ability to balance them, um, but the fact that this does it automatically, I thought was pretty uh, pretty cool. Another interesting fact was that uh, somewhere on the website, I think one, in one of their flyers, they said that about three hundred machines are in operation, and I thought that was fascinating because, you know, with with uh, three hundred lines or three hundred machines. Well, because a line could have like half a dozen machines. In it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's machines. Um, you never know; it could be lines. But uh, to me, it kind of struck me. I, I come from a very different perspective. We make you know less than less than fifty watches per year, and I feel like with one line, let's say it's you know 
six six uh, or seven or ten machines, I could conquer the world. So yeah. <laughs> where these 300 machines are, uh, I'd love to know. But I would love to see something like this for the knife industry, um, like a transfer line set up just for knife handles. Like you stick a mm. water jet double disc round blank in one side and uh, it runs through the gamut and spits out complete knife handle on the other. I think that'd be uh, pretty cool. I think you'd actually be onto something as well because it's the same sort of methodology. Like the blanks are double disc round. Uh, if if they're water jet, you know they have locating features. Uh, even if they're just crude locating features already in them, uh, and the cycle times would probably be long enough that you could justify you know making only fifty thousand a year or something. And it could possibly pay off. Hey, you might, you might, you might expand your machine tool building range, even if you're not careful, Adam. I'll just get a bunch of Moris and link them together, <laughs> and put a like a one of those um, conveyor belts that can change the direction. Yeah, uh, in between. Them. <laughs> Today on the history segment, we're going to be talking about precision screws. Uh, obviously, the screw can go all the way back to Grecian times and Archimedes, uh, but my interest was when the screw went from a hand-carved item to something made on a machine by another screw. And so that's what we dig into today. Okay, so a lot of my interest was how was the first accurate screw made? Because most screws are made from some other kind of screw producing that motion. Uh, on a lathe, it's following the lead screw, which pitch and is set through a gearbox. Um, on a modern CNC lathe, it's using a ball screw. So what was the, the first screw? Very chicken and the egg scenario. Um, and as near as I can tell, a astronomical and scientific instrument maker named Jesse Ramsden uh, needed to build a dividing engine and went so far as to produce one of the early screw cutting lathes to do this. And it seems as though he built this lathe with some kind of crude hand carved screw and then used the lathe to further refine that. Um, and that's about all the info I'm getting but I suspect he was able to identify certain accurate elements of that hand-carved screw and average their errors and transfer that onto a new piece of uh, stock and through iterations slowly average out his errors and get a precision pitch uh, over the whole length. Um, I, I was hoping there was some old uh, kind of intrinsic way of doing this kind of how you can make three flat surfaces by comparing them to one another uh, but uh, not really having any luck finding any old wisdom on screw manufacturing yeah i feel like it's it's one of those things that we kind of sorted out as humanity and uh didn't look back too much <laughs> you know? no no once we had the first screw that's all we needed to know <laughs> yeah. but uh, but yeah, I mean, even until the 1800s, uh, a lot of wood screws were still hand carved, which I found interesting. Um, that metal hand carving a screw 
can't be a pleasant thing to do. Um, and then the first screw machines, a uh, group of guys built specifically to make metal screws, and it was a commercial flop for whatever reason. Um, so interesting early history on screws. Yeah, I, there's there's a big, I guess, push to make an accurate screw uh, because once you have an accurate uh, screw, you can measure very accurately. I mean, every micrometer is based around that principle. Uh, the standardization was also a big thing, which didn't happen until the 19th century. Uh, basically, every manufacturer had their own set of diameters and pitches. And the screws and nuts did not interchange. And so you'd have to basically buy the same nut and same screw from the same manufacturer and hope they fit. As someone who makes uh, both the, the, the parts that the fasteners go into and the fasteners, um, I can tell you that it's very tempting to just uh, more or less like fit each component into each other and forget about any standards. Um, you, you see that a lot when you're thread milling parts, uh, you know, you make your screw and then you thread mill the hole and you just keep reducing, um, or increasing the offsets or whatever you want to do until that screw fits into the hole. And, um, it's great when it's like an M6 screw or a gauge even, but when the, the tapped features get very small, you know, the gauges stop making too much sense, um, <laughs> so it's very tempting to just go out on a limb and say, ha, ah, I made like, you know, an M1 or an M0.8 uh, thread and everyone else can figure it out, you know, if they need to make the screw for my watch. <laughs> Some of those small threads you cut would make me uh, eerie. Like I do a lot of number twos, which is about two millimeter mm -hmm. in metric. And uh, you, you almost have to be careful just gauging them. You can, you know, it's such a fine thread. You can damage it if you, if you so much as look at it, you know, out of square with the thread gauge. You have to really have it aligned. And that's in titanium. Uh, so I imagine gauging them in soft brass must be a real challenge. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's got a lot to do with uh, the chamfer, like we mentioned in the previous part of the podcast the chamfer has a lot to do with how the thread feels and how it gauges and how you know you can gauge it without damaging it um and little known fact is that a 30 degree chamfer uh often yields better results when you get down that small a 45 degree chamfer doesn't always uh feel the most pleasant um and when you get down to like uh most recently i was working with s 0 0.6 um, if you match the chamfer on the screw where the thread starts and the chamfer on the part, uh, you can get a really, really nice feel and um, I guess stop stop the uh, possibility of um, stripping the screw or cross-threading it or something like that. Now, when you say 30 degrees, my mind goes, okay, which direction? Is that the included angle 60 or 120? Uh, 60. So you're what you're doing is okay. you're matching the thread um, pitch. So if you can imagine the, the thread being a 60 degree angle, the chamfer doesn't, um, it's, it's flatter. It, the chamfer doesn't cut into the thread. It matches the thread. I see. 
Yeah, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but when you've done it once, you'll know know exactly how it feels and um, feels better. <laughs> so what types of precision screws are out there currently? Well, most motion CNC's handled via ball screw, and uh, there's specific grinders just for those. Um, you, of course, in your current have probably one of the cooler types of screw motion, which is a hydrostatic screw. Um, and the more I read about those, the more I really like them. I think even to this day, they still kind of have some advantages over linear motors um, from what everything I've read. I think they're, they're really, really interesting technology. Um, you also see, was it the planetary screw? And those mm-hmm. are kind of neat to watch where you have a, a central shaft and then you have these, they almost look like a set screw. They're just a short segment of thread that plant around it, transmitting motion. And so there's not a, a, a sliding or a galling action occurring like there is with a standard screw. Mm. Uh, everything's on a rolling motion. And so you can very accurately transmit huge loads of torque. So you see those in a lot of linear pressing applications. Mm. Uh, and I, I think those are really, really fascinating. And then for a lot of manual equipment, you have like a, a square or an Acme pitch thread, which instead of that 60 degree shape, you have much more squared off. And that's more more transmission of power than that it allows you. Yeah, and that's uh, a pretty interesting Thing you noted which is the difference in the in the in the the form of the screw i know for example the shoblin collets that i use the kind of w series collets they have like a buttress sort of uh thread form which uh helps in i guess uh it's like and it's almost anti-locking or rather locking mm-hmm. um and m- most recently it was about two years ago i think Dixie developed a new type of uh, thread form for uh, the watch industry for these really small screws. And the problem, obviously, that we have, and I hate bringing it back all all the time to watchmaking, but it's the only thing I know. Um, uh, Obviously, when you put a screw into something soft like brass, especially if it's like a hardened steel screw, uh, over time, you can loosen the thread and uh, you more or less cut or form a larger and larger thread and at one point it gets too loose and the screw can actually back itself out but dixie developed a new type of um thread form uh that i guess limits the effect of that and it once you lock it in place the first time it um it got i guess kind of self-locks to the point where you need uh, less force to lock the screw down so or less torque rather uh, so you reduce the risk of over-torquing and then, I guess, destroying the thread. Uh, but with most machine, like manual machine tools, uh, I still think that the most common is like an Acme or a square sort of thread. I know Shoblin still uses a two millimeter pitch and um, most kind of like Bridgeport style machines also use that. Yeah, it's kind of the old standard. Um, my grinder uses them in all three axes or up to the axiom and it's belt driven on the third. Um, they're very effective with a bronze nut, uh, especially in a manual situation. The wearer isn't 
anything I worry about. I check backlash on my grinder once a year and it really hasn't moved since I had it. Yeah. And you also mentioned uh, before the podcast something about Moore and their lead screws. What was, what did they do? Oh, yeah. They actually they lapped it and the pitch is accurate or more accurate than a lot of the lower end gauge block sets. Um, and then they hand fit via lapping the mating nut to each screw individually. So you have to buy them as a set. But uh, the jig grinder I ran at Superb, we had more come in and do a periodic inspection on it. And the last one, over over the length of the table, it was only out 1.2 microns uh, wow. total air. And that was near the center where it gets you know the most use. Um, so just incredibly accurate uh screws and that is 18 inch length so i wow i always think they kind of perfected the the manual lead screw um but yeah it's one of those things that you know when it was the only way to do it they did it the best but now there's a you know plethora of other options and yeah i i heard and you might have even told me this in a previous conversation that more sort of chased the really accurate lead screw and a lot of other jig grinding companies like Hauser or SIP, they chased the very, very accurate uh, scale. And so it didn't really matter how accurate your lead screw was. If you had a very accurate scale, um, you could sort of mitigate that. Yeah. And that was, that was definitely SIP's plays instead of uh, more, you didn't really see the longer lead screws um like sips were so much bigger machines that i don't think they could have produced a lead screw that accurate uh some larger sips mm. have like a meter and a half x travel and mm. so th- that technology only seems to work on shorter lengths um so sips solution was just you know build an optical measuring system inside the machine which was fabulous mm. but i always wonder if the next step, the next evolution of that is to use something like a laser interferometer as a uh, perpetual measurement for linear motion. Um, so instead of a glass scale, use a laser. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, just have like a receiver on the table or something. Huh. Who knows? I, I mean, I think there's a lot of issues with like the stability of the laser and the conditions that the laser has to be in. Um, but... Maybe if someone else knows anything about that, um, they can send us a message. So yeah, there's a there's a brief chopped up history of screws and where we are today. Uh, like I said, there's there's a lot of history of the the early screw, but our our concern was when machines and screws came together, and so. A lot, of, a lot of cool things you could read out there on it. Um, some of them didn't really translate well to audio. Um, a lot of schematics. So worth looking into. Um, so maybe we should make a point and kind of go through all the basic, uh, the basic machines. Yes. Like the inclined plane and screw and pulley and <laughs> the uh, new bold indexer. Uh, yeah. And then diffraction grading machine and then (laughs) 
So with this week's precision problem, it's not actually my precision problem. It's uh, my apprentice's co-worker's workshop manager's, uh, his name's Andrew. He's working on a clock and it's his problem that he solved. But it's fascinating how he did it and um, we'll post a picture of it on the Instagram page. So go have a look. Long story short, he's making a clock and um, he's designing it off a schematic from a book and then taking that schematic to the next level and implementing a lot of modern features. And uh, one of the problems he ran into was whilst modernizing a clock component called the barrel by adding bearings to it, he couldn't accurately, um, I guess, make some sort of shaft assembly with four gears that all interplay with each other Accurately, he couldn't he couldn't get these gears to stack and slide and all the rest. And I gave him the idea of saying, and this is where I kind of take the credit of the idea, but not the execution or the implementation. But I said to him, have a look at sort of machine spindle design and see how they preload bearings and how they use washers or really spacers and locking nuts and all the rest. And he took an idea of a precision spindle that very rarely makes it into the watch or clockmaking industry. The closest thing we get to is with oscillating masses, uh, like in an automatic winding watch. Um, They use uh, kind of bearing configurations. Uh, But in the clockmaking world, you know, spindle design doesn't really infiltrate. Uh, But long story short, he made a spindle. He had four gears, each with their own bearing, actually three with their own bearing and one with... um, a square drive so only one gear is actually driving the shaft and all the rest are kind of connected through either ratchets or springs like pretension springs and uh, he developed all of this on the design level so he put it all in SolidWorks and made it and it worked in the first go which was quite incredible given there's no tolerances that are you know need to be held tightly we're not dealing with run out and things like that but it still worked. So it was a very elegant solution, I think, to a quite complex problem. That sounds good. Um, it's interesting that you give your apprentice that much uh, freedom to pursue projects like that. Um, I had that opportunity when I was young in the trade. And I'm not going to lie. It's probably why I can do the things I can do is because I had to struggle and learn on projects like that. Yeah, I mean, at the start of the year, we sort of um, sat down and tried to figure out what we were going to do. And Nick, uh, my dad, really wanted a clock. And he looked at Andrew and said, hey, make a clock. (laughs) Um, So he has like a a big say in the project and where the project heads. So it's not as if it's, um, uh, I guess, uh, directionless, but from a technical and mechanical standpoint and also manufacturing andrew is doing everything and so we just said you know here here's this awesome workshop with a bunch of nice machines um make a clock and so far i think most of the clock is wire edm'd (laughs) i don't think like it's either made on the wire edm or on the shoblin lathe um but it's very unconventional you know it's usually with this sort of thing um you know, if, if you tell someone who's never made a, a die before to make a die, they're going to 
come up with a lot of creative things because they've never seen like a die before. Granted, it's probably not going to work the first time. Um, and with a lot of Andrew's components, they didn't really work the first time. But I like that this is the exact opposite of the click spring clock. <laughs> Instead of all these hand-carved brass pieces, you're just wired EDMing everything. Yes, uh, <laughs> absolutely. I, well, Andrew never really um, spent a lot of time on the milling machine, on the Kern. He sort of dumped, uh, sorry, he sort of dived head in to the wire EDM. He was there when it was installed and he went, um, or at least he was getting trained by the engineers when they came over and all the rest. So he knows how to wire EDM a lot of stuff and uh, a lot of complex shapes and springs and all the rest. So when the clock project was given to him, he just kind of said, oh, I'll just make and design every single component so it's easily wire EDMable, <laughs> you know? When, when your only tool is a hammer, the world is a nail. <laughs> yes, exactly. So what about your precision problem? Uh, not necessarily a problem, but just kind of a, a slight improvement. So I'm back in the pocket knife parts game for the time being, and uh, there's a point where the side of the handles thinned out so that there's this flexor joint created and this this bar flexes over and that's what locks the uh the knife blade open and so that that joint it's essentially just a, a slot made with a ball mill uh and it thins out the metal enough so that the handle valve flexes there uh mm. and there's there's a pretty tight dimension uh, at the thin point. And in the past, I've done the measurement by putting a ball bearing in that groove and then measuring over it. And that seemed very reliable. Um, when I took the parts to the customer the first time, it correlated with what they were seeing. They liked, uh, they liked the tension. So that has always worked, but uh, it's kind of a three-handed operation. And uh, recently, I had repaired this Mitutoyo indicator height stand. It needed a, a fine adjustment knob made, and I finally had some downtime and made one. And uh, I got back to making these knife parts, and I thought, oh, that that indicator stand I just finished, I could probably use that. And uh, instead of having a ball down in that slot, just the tip of an axial dial indicator could uh, reach down in there and uh, very, very quick, very, very easy, way less frustration. Um, and if I'm being honest, I have, I have much higher level of confidence in the measurement, even though the previous way was working fine. Uh, this is just very, very certain. You know exactly what you're getting. So mm. uh, nothing, nothing big, but just Small little improvements like that make make the day go better. Yeah, I use that sort of method with a you know granite or a um, lapped indicator height stand and all that sort of me like measurement workflow. I use that quite a bit, and I find that um, the flatness of the part influence can influence the measurement a lot. Um, so if if you can imagine like the part like a banana, if you put the part uh, where the banana t is is touching the the plate in the middle the you'll get a good reading but if you shift the banana over and then 
put any sort of force, you can lift the part up or influence the part quite a bit. Did you have any issues with that? No. And originally, that very reason is why I didn't do these on the granite. Um, mm-hmm. first time I tried measuring it, that's how I tried. And I found that, you know, the handle's about five and a half inches long and over that distance there, there is, you know, enough flatness issue to cause a wiggle. Uh, but on this indicator stand, the measuring pads only two inches in diameter. And so at that length, the out of flatness that's within spec for the part, mm-hmm. uh, isn't enough to be an issue. So it, it seemed to work out pretty well. That and there's something about it's a it's a more solid loop. Um, when when you put a, a heavy axial indicator on a, a stand on a granite plate, um, it doesn't it doesn't feel as solid as this does. Did you always have that uh, indicator stand? I bought that at an auction last fall, and it went for twenty five bucks. Oh. And I was like, yeah, what the heck. And then I, I like got to looking at it during the bidding. I was like, oh, it doesn't have a knob. And I was like, eh, it's still 25 bucks. I can make a knob. And so, um, you know, I picked it up for dirt cheap. The only issue is, and I hate when companies do this, some, somebody, somebody engraved a polishing department into the, uh, the nice hammer tone finish. Uh, I, I really wish people would just not carve into enamel paint finishes on measuring equipment yeah well i guess now you're the polishing department (laughs) or polish department (laughs) and well done you made it to the end of episode six of the precision microcast thank you everyone for listening we really appreciate you staying and uh, listening and also interacting So if you'd like to interact even more, head over to our Instagram pages, Adam the Machinist for Adam and Nicholas Hacko Watch for myself. And further than that, head to the.precision.microcast on Instagram and you'll see all the show notes and all the little pictures that we post to aid the show. So again, thank you very much for listening. This is just a passion project of Adam and I's and... I get a really big kick from seeing you listen and tune in. So once again, thank you very much and tune in for the next episode of the Precision Microcast.